Hello, everybody, and welcome to the STEM Equity Network podcast series. This is a series of weekly interviews with STEM leaders, that is science, technology, engineering and mathematics professionals and leaders who go through their experiences and thoughts on equality in STEM positions, particularly in leadership positions. We're doing this in order to come up with some practical solutions to help achieve equity in STEM leadership positions. And today we are very, very fortunate to have a fabulous person with us today. His name is Luther and he is the Managing Director of Blue Chili Technology. Blue Chili is a startup accelerator and Luther brings together experience in Canada and Australia across public service and investment banking through to his experience as a serial founder, an angel investor and a VC. Luther was decorated for military service in both the RCN and the RAN and was also a founding director of Artolution, a global not-for-profit that operates in distressed locations to ignite positive social change through collaborative community art. I tell you what, you guys should Google Artolution. It is amazing, the work that they do. A Blue Chili, he's been part of the team that creates and runs She Starts. And She Starts is an Australian tech accelerator program that focuses on building female leadership in tech firms and helping solve some of the world's biggest challenges. Luther's based in Sydney, married to the author Catherine Greer and has two teenage sons and we're very pleased to have him on board. Luther, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Catherine. It's great to be here. So Luther, can you go into your background at the moment? It sounds like you've had a very interesting and checkered career. So you started out in Canada in the Navy. Yes, it was a bit of a circuitous path. You know, I did my undergrad, then did graduate work. And I remember my thesis advisor, who had been a submarine captain, said to me when I was thinking about doing a doctorate, he said, I think you need to leave the library, Luther, and you need to get some real world experience. So I ended up joining the Navy. I thought I'd be there for three years, ended up more than a decade in Canada, and then the uh, Royal Australian Navy spied me and poached me and brought me across to this place. Wow. So it was uh, an interesting journey along the way. So at the Navy, what was your position? So, you know, everybody starts out at the bottom. (laughs) It doesn't matter who you are, what you do, you start at the bottom. I actually started out in the Army for a little while, realized that I didn't like sleeping, you know, in wet swamps and humping a pack around and ended up going officer in the Navy. I was a warfare officer and a navigator. I had my command qualification. And two projects that I worked on that actually led me to Australia, one was very early days of uh, you know Oculus Rift that Facebook bought a few years ago, the mm-hmm. virtual reality headset. Yeah, I was involved in a project in warfare simulation, um, virtual reality simulation early on. This was uh, mid '90s, and was involved in that project. And then I worked on a big navigation project where we built very kind of Star Trek holodeck warfare navigation simulation trainer on the west coast of Canada. And so. One of the reasons why the Royal Australian Navy brought me across was because I had that virtual reality simulation technology of a master's in simulation. And so they called me up and brought me over. Wow. So can I talk about your experiences with the Navy? What was it like in comparison, you know, comparing the Canadian Navy to Australia? I mean, you know, we always think that we're very similar in terms of well, culture. The, the two countries I always smile when people say, oh, we're so similar. In fact, we're fundamentally different in many ways. But the military is kind of a microcosm of that. And what a lot of people don't know is that the Canadian military, starting in you know, the early 70s, 
became basically a hotbed of social experiment, I would say, for the government. We got rid of our Navy and our Air Force and our Army. We amalgamated all services. That's since been, just in the last few years since I left, been split out again. But we went through a situation where the military became the vanguard of the people, so to speak, all of us, because remembering that Canada is a dual language country, unlike Australia, where we haven't had to deal with two cultures at war with each other, and we pretty much had civil war in the middle 70s, early 70s. We had essentially martial law for a little while. The military became a place where everyone had to be both Anglophone and Francophone. And that same drive towards equality and diversity was pushed into the gender side. So my very first ship, believe it or not, in the early 90s, HMCS Nipigon on the east coast of Canada had more women than men in it. Hmm. In most of our ships, we were pretty much 50-50. Now, the interesting thing is that you know, reality lags usually a little bit. Even though we were pretty much 50-50 on the ship, uh, what you found is that the ship's crew divided along traditional lines. So the men were down in the engine room and were the engineers and the bosuns, you know, doing the ropes and all the physical labor. And the women, and I saw this in European navies when I spent a number of years with a NATO squadron, the women basically dominated the warfare occupations. So women are the warfare leaders. They are the ones that manage information because naval warfare is all about information management. You know, before there was ever networks, we were networked over long distances at sea. So, you know, I came into a Navy in Canada where it was 50-50. I had no conception. I think in a lot of ways, I didn't see that kind of gender macho-ness that you see in the military. And obviously I was new. I went through my career always in ships with women. Didn't even think about it as a ship with women. But when I did come to Australia, I have to say, I noticed that my first ship in this Royal Australian Navy, and I was the navigator in that, I looked around and there were no women. And I was like, what's going on here? Where are the women? <laughs> and so it was like going back probably 20 years. That said, the Royal Australian Navy has made significant changes over the last number of years. And I think like a lot of government departments, the Navy understands more than anyone else, their operational effectiveness is important. And so when you're working with other countries where the ships are half male, half female, and you come to realize that you can't fight a war with your best arm behind your back, essentially. Mm -hmm. I think it's much better nowadays. I know there are a number of women who are captains of ships out there, warships, and you have a lot of really great female leaders. But when I first came here, it was a shock. That's really interesting. So again, I would reiterate, you know, in Australia, we think Canada are very similar to us. What you're suggesting is in this microcosm of the Navy, it shows a bigger picture in that it was perhaps very weighted towards men and male leadership at the time when you came up. I mean, obviously things are changing and we can tell things are changing. But I think there's still a long way that we can go in Australia. I would point you, Catherine, to uh, look at our current government's cabinet and say the Canadian government's cabinet. Justin Trudeau made a stated purpose at the very start to make sure that he had gender diversity 50-50 in his cabinet, in all of his ministers, as well as a significant ethnic diversity as well. I mean, nobody blinked an eye in Canada when our defense minister was a Sikh wearing a turban, you know, for the pictures. That wasn't even an issue. Seeing it in Australia, I saw that kind of difference. And we have a, an amazingly diverse culture here. And Melbourne is, I think, rated as the most ethnically diverse city in the world. But I think that because we have a monoculture, English Australia, Whereas Canada had the benefit and curse of being a dual culture. We used to call it the two solitudes. And so 
when you start thinking about ethnic diversity, French and English, linguistic diversity, French and English, you start to realize that you have to think about the minority position. You have to think about watching for systemic bias. Mm. And I'm not saying Canada is great at this, probably looks much better sitting beside the US, but nonetheless, you know, and that's how humans are, right? We all have that unconscious bias, male or female. Canada's just had to deal with it, I think. And we're still working on that. And we've got some great leaders here that are trying to work on it. Yeah. So Australia really needs to, first of all, acknowledge and then work on the systemic bias throughout all of our leadership positions. It's unconscious too. It's very difficult for us to not be biased. One of the things we do at Blue Chili is whenever we're selecting our cohorts, and some of your listeners probably um, know how we will run a cohort to select uh, founders and help them build the technology companies. One of the things we always do for She Starts, and we actually have done for all of our cohorts in the last number of years, is the judges, we always do unconscious bias training with them before any of the sessions. And we call out those things. Now, if I look at our most recent Future Minds Accelerator that we're running with Amazon Web Services as a sponsor and Rio Tinto as a sponsor, at the end of it, we selected 14 startups for the Educational Technology Accelerator. Then we sat back and looked at it and I, I said, you know what? we have equal male, female-led startups here. Now, that wasn't something that we necessarily thought about, but I think it was something where we didn't plan it in a sense. It happened. And that's, you know, a tribute to our team who did the campaign to source great startups. But I also think that it's just one of those small little wins that shows that if you continually work against unconscious bias and think about these things, whether it's gender, whether it's race, whether it's disability or ability, whatever it is, we we will slowly work those things out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So consciously addressing unconscious bias means that eventually it will become an unconscious thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. It has to be a habit for us, right? And that's difficult. And we all think that we're gender blind or color blind, but it's very difficult for us to move out of our frameworks. Mm. I think I'm just lucky in a way sometimes that I see my own biases and frameworks fairly quickly because not only do I come from a country where that was called out all the time, but when you're an immigrant and you come to another country, there are a whole bunch of things that stare you in the face. Hmm. You know, even just my wife had trouble when we first came here. I remember we were sitting on a train in Sydney and she had real trouble with the Australian accent at the start. She was afraid to even pick up the phone. (laughs) And we were... We were on a train and, you know, you hear the train conductors in Sydney Rail and one of them came on giving an announcement, the train was stopped and he had a very thick Indian accent. Mm -hmm. And my wife said, oh, it just feels like home. And I said, (laughs) he had an Indian accent. And she went, did he? And we listened and he did. And so we were so used to a non-Australian accent in Canada, but that felt to her like home in a way. Yeah. Which is kind of strange. We, we still laugh about that. But it's basically getting out of your comfort zone and your mm-hmm. surroundings mm-hmm. creates an awareness of all the things that you take for granted. And we all love to live comfortable lives, right? Exactly. But, you know, getting out of your comfort zone means that you grow. Now, on that note, can I just move this conversation over a little bit? Talking about your career then, what happened next after you joined the Royal Australian Navy? How did you kind of get out of that? Yeah, you you make it sound like I broke out of jail or something. Um, (laughs) But uh, listen, it it was interesting because I did realize at a certain point in time, the Navy 
although I loved it and I love the camaraderie and, and the people. Some of the smartest people in the world I've met in the military. At that point in time, my wife was working in banking. She'd come across with me. She's Canadian as well. And we were about to have our first son and I was posted to the Middle East. I would have been on a ship for probably two years plus. And I had come across knowing that I probably would leave the Navy there was a chance. And so I ended up doing some education as you do. Canadians tend to think, oh, if you're going to make a change, you need to get an education, an MBA or a PhD or something. So I was working on my MBA and I was lucky enough to have a uh, professor who was also working at the British investment bank Rothschild. He believed in me and uh, hired me into a debt capital markets position right out of the Navy, which was interesting because I'd never had even a desk job, really. I'd always either been at sea or been working on you know, technology projects. My last role in the RAN was a technology project. I started a digital charts project. I was flabbergasted we didn't have digital charts here. So I started that project and worked on a number of technology initiatives in the RAN. But that was a case where somebody believed in me and hired me. And he had to fight for me to be hired because they didn't believe that somebody from the Navy could do a good job. I didn't have any finance background. You know, they put a lot of hurdles in my way that I had to jump through. Mm. But having that mentor, having that almost like a sponsor, somebody who can Mm. bring you up is really important for people's career, both male and female. It is. It, It does not matter. And I'll give you a funny example, maybe, and I think he's probably spoken about this, but Ian Narev, who used to be the CEO of CBA, I heard him speak once and he said that, you know, he left McKinsey, he went to CBA as head of strategy, and Ralph Norris, who was the CEO at the time, who has an interesting story in and of itself, said to Ian, I think you should be CEO. And Ian went, I have no idea what to do. Like I've never, you know, I I don't think I can do this. And Ralph said, I think you can do it. Mm. We're going to get you ready. And Ian ended up being CEO of CBA for better or for worse. But the reality is that would not have happened. And he recognized that unless he had a sponsor. Same thing happened to Ralph Norris himself at ASB in New Zealand. If you look at someone like Kelly Bear Rosmarin and Optus or Gail Kelly, who was at St. George and then at Westpac, almost everyone will lay out for you someone who has given them um, a step up, who's believed in them. Yeah. It's why it's so important. It's why we all have a teacher from school mm. who we all remember. We have that one teacher, don't we, Catherine? Mm. Yes, we do. <laughs> who believed in us no matter what, right? Or came to believe in us. And that actually fuels us through our lives, gives us the confidence, which is something that, you know, not only we all need is confidence, but I think sometimes, especially what we find in She Starts is that the female founders often need confidence and a recognition that what they can do is as good or even better than what our male founders can sometimes do. Yep. And look, let's go into that then. So you started out in finance or in tech in finance. Mm. Where did you kind of maneuver your career (laughs) into being a venture capitalist and being a serial founder, an angel investor? How did Mm. that happen? Yeah, we all sometimes follow a path I won't say of least resistance. I think sometimes my partner would say I followed the path of most resistance, the things that seem (laughs) most daunting. I would say, let's try that, which I think is what a lot of founders do. For me, it was, you know, through banking, GFC was quite hard because of the GFC. I ended up having two startups. One uh, co-founded and helped um, digital music startup. We ended up closing that down, but we made some money. And I had a fintech startup that was fabulously successful, but I had a co-founder who was less than truthful. And we ended up closing that down, had some problems. And that taught me so many things, certainly from a founder point of view. 
And then I ended up, because I'd been in the equity capital markets, debt capital markets, I ended up with Commonwealth Private Office as an investment advisor to high net worth families. And that really showed me how angels and how families invest their money and how they look at investment. And one of the things that they often do is they look, as we all know, for the people and the quality of leadership that's in a company, in a startup. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, at the same time, Sebastian Eckers, Lee Maslin, who initially started Blue Chili, we were both in the Navy together. So we knew each other. I was one of the first investors in, and over the years, because I had both a startup background, having done my own, had an advisory background, had helped companies raise capital. I you know, very quickly got pulled into the Blue Chili uh, orbit, and you know, I was Seb's mentor for a number of years, and I've worked very closely with him, and now running Blue Chili. Mm-hmm. So the DNA of Blue Chili right from the start was really about building things that people need and solving problems in the world. And I suppose what we realized, and Seb certainly saw this, and our first program director at She Starts was all about this, Nicola Hazel, who's now at Amazon. Nicola was very clear, and you know I was right beside her helping with that. We worked on designing and building this first She Starts program to make sure that it was recognizing that women don't need to be coders. And one of the brilliant things that I think Blue Chili has done, whether it's male or female, we've taken the archetypal, you know, white male in a garage, in a hoodie, a bit of scruffiness, who can code. And that is the archetypal startup founder. What we have always known at Blue Chili is that the best startup founders and data from MIT and Kauffman Institute in the US back this up over you know, multiple generations, is that the best founders are older, MIT released a study last year saying that the highest ROI for a first-time technology founder is age 48.6, believe it or not. And the best tech founders are non-coders. So at Blue Chili, our focus just in our regular cohorts was industry experts, subject matter experts who couldn't code. If we think that IT is infrastructure, the most important thing is the problem and the ability to sell it and the ability to find a problem that people actually want to pay you to solve. Well, if we bring that over to a gender focus, women obviously are disparaged, at least in the press sometimes, and certainly in the past by VCs and other investors, while they can't code. And the reality is what we knew is that coding is just a commodity. The most important thing is your ability to see a problem, analyze it, and understand it. Women are just as good as men at that. In fact, probably in some ways um, better in terms of thought processes. So tell me, how did then did she start start? I mean, Blue Chili started to solve the problem of being able to offer tech solutions for founders mm. who had an idea, right? Why did she start start? We really recognized when we looked at our cohorts that we were getting a lot of men. And if there's one thing we all knew, and Sebastian was clear in this, I was very clear in this from my time in the Navy, was that we have half of the population that is not represented. And as I said before, if you need a complex problem solved, you shouldn't just deal with half the population. And we had some amazing women coming through anyway, right? And so we realized that what we saw out in regular industry was that there was a dearth of female leaders. And female leaders start somewhere. They don't just pop up fully formed at the head of Westpac or the head of Optus or Telstra or wherever. It's a generational nurturing and a generational change in the system. And so, you know, we know we're not going to um, be the ones that 
totally change the system, but we wanted to be part of it. We were seeing so many amazing, some female founders. So we thought this is where we need to focus. She Starts was the first kind of diversity focused program in Australia. We had great support from ANZ, MYOB, Microsoft LinkedIn, Google for Startups, UTS, who all believed in the narrative. And so for us, it was really about building the next generation of leaders in a lot of ways. Okay. So then she starts. Let's talk about the program. How many entrepreneurs have you had through the program and where has it got to now? So we've run three cohorts over the last three years. Mm -hmm. Each cohort usually has between um, eight to 10 startup founders. The impact though is greater than those eight to 10 startup founders because when we run the campaign to source ideas, uh, we will get anywhere from five to six, seven hundred applications from women across Australia. We diligently go through those and we usually will bring it down to about 40 to 50 startups or founders with an idea that we bring into a two-week boot camp. One of the things that has always come out of each of the boot camp is that that cohort that comes into the boot camp, they may not get selected for the six-month program, but almost all of them will pull me aside at some point in time. And there's a number I still keep in touch with who say that they learn so much because the bootcamp itself is almost like a mini accelerator. Mm -hmm. So each of the startups that get selected go through a six month program. Uh, we really work with them both on building the product because we give them a team of developers, a product manager, which is crucial. The product manager is, I always say, the translation between the business idea and the technology guys, the developers. And that six-month program, by the middle of the program, the third month, they have a product where we have a demo day. And by the end of the six months, we have in place both the structure around them, the corporate structure, the product in market. About 62% of them are revenue generating by that point in time. About 80% of them, 85% have a pilot, which is one of the big things we try and make sure we can help them gain. And by the end of the accelerator, they're ready for investment usually. So if you look at our best startups, I had a VC who shall not be named say to me once, we thought you were crazy starting She Starts. <laughs> Women can't be tech entrepreneurs. And he said, but you know what? You've proved me wrong. When I look across the ecosystem, your female founders and the tech companies coming out of She Starts are some of the best in the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. and whether it's, you know, Neighborlytics, who's uh, an AI company based in Melbourne, or Bindi Maps, who does indoor mapping for assisted living, Talkie Play, which is an IoT play for helping people with delayed speech pathologies, especially children. We just got a, a plethora of fantastic female-led startups mm. that have a mission, know exactly what they need to do. We've just given them a bit of a leg up. They take it from there. Yeah. You know what, that's really what is needed at the moment. Obviously, to be able to fill that leadership void, mm -hmm. to be able to pull these women up and give them that mentorship and give them the tools to be able to develop their businesses further. Let's talk about then women in leadership. I mean, you mentioned that there was this hole in the market where there's not enough women, right? Um, what else do you think we need to do in order to build up our reserves? I mean, you know, we're not talking about putting people in positions that they're not ready for. It's actually developing them for leadership positions and starting from an early age or starting from maybe mid-career and identifying these women mm -hmm. who can be leaders in sort of five to ten years' time. First of all, what are you guys doing at Blue Chile apart from the She Starts program? And what do you think us as a community needs to do in order to build these women up? It's a great question, and it's such a, as they say, multifactorial 
(laughs) I know. We're we're only trying to do a little piece in our little neck of the woods, I suppose. But the problem is big. I mean, you know, we always joke that there are more Peters on the ASX than there are women CEOs. And female CEOs and executives significantly outnumbered by their male peers. That missed opportunity starts well before. So the young girls who are dropping out of STEM and not focusing on it starting in grade you know, four or five. And certainly our Future Minds program is focused on that. You know, if we look at our cohort of startups coming through that education technology accelerator, there's a lot of focus on STEM, gender diversity, making sure that we are building the next generation of thinkers and leaders, 21st century skills, male and female. But the missed opportunity for women in STEM and women in leadership is a domino effect that goes, I think, through the generations. You know, younger women, I think, often struggle to identify a future, even early on, mm-hmm. in some of those male-dominated fields, certainly of STEM, if you want to think about it that way. And what we need to do as a society is continually break down those biases early on. And so that comes down to mentors, role models, and examples. One of our startups in the Future Minds Accelerator Champion Life, which focuses on physicality, health, and wellness, both from a physical and emotional point of view. Their platform uses mentors. I shouldn't say mentors, but examples. You know, let's just say she takes a really diverse range of leaders from women who are scientists or astronauts or Aboriginal leaders. They can choose a program where this person is not so much engagement, but an example for them. And I think having an example for women across all these different areas is really important. We have so many great examples in this country that we just need to, I think, celebrate a little more as a first thing. We're trying to do that with She Starts and also all of our programs to make sure that we consciously ensure, as I said, that we don't have one hand tied behind our back and that our staff are committed to that. You know, our program director for She Starts, Philippa, does a lot of work globally in helping female entrepreneurs. She's been involved internationally helping female entrepreneurs in a project in Guinea-Bissau. And, you know, our whole team really is focused on making sure that we, and then we connect to our community to be kind of leaders Mm. um, and, and inspire people. Yeah, it's certainly inspiring me, Luther. So you've got one person on board. And I'm pretty sure there's plenty of other people in our audience who are inspired as well by what you're doing. I think possibly we could wrap it up here. Mm-hmm. But um, I'd really like to pick your brains in our final couple of minutes to see what else we can do as a group to be able to stem the gap between this mm-hmm. massive leadership. I mean, Me as a woman, I find that leadership jump is really quite daunting. You know, how can we help other women Mm. like me? To be able to not see that as so daunting and to be able to reach that point and beyond. Mm. Well, I'll let you in on a little secret. It's daunting for men too. Um, (laughs) That's good to know. uh, Leadership. And, you know, in the Navy, when we think of leadership, we think of command, which has a bad connotation, but it's very much about Military shows you servant leadership, taking care of your people more than anything else. And I think the leaders in this country need to take care of their people, whether it's on the corporate side or the political side. My partner just released a book called The 10-Minute Fix. You can get it on Amazon. It's a shameless plug here. Catherine Greer is her author name. And The 10-Minute Fix, what's interesting about that, and we've talked about it as a family, is that there's so many big problems in the world, but some problems can be fixed in 10 minutes. Some problems can over time be whittled away at, you know, like the water against a stone. 
And so I think there's a whole bunch of things that we can do as a country. You know, we're trying to do it with you know, unconscious bias training in everything we do. I think every company should be doing unconscious bias training in each of the things they do. So when you go to hire somebody and you are going through their CVs, right, things like that should be anonymized. We have to change how those promotion processes work so that there's that unconscious bias. We certainly need to focus on succession planning in big companies. Yes. I think one of the things I saw at CBA was that there was a very conscious effort to make sure that women were empowered and promoted into senior positions. And I think big corporates are starting to get that. Sadly, sometimes maybe it's not because they see it as the right thing to do from a justice point of view. Maybe sometimes they just see that the best people are the women and so they need to get them in those senior positions. But that's a better option than just wanting to fix quotas, quite frankly. And most women don't want to be a quota mm. either. Well, a, so if they're the yeah, best if I can just, the job, then that's great. But if they're a quota, if it's just a number, then that's really not where we want to be, quite frankly. Yeah, Saying that, it's there for a reason, right? You want to just I, even up the balance. I waver. I waver between quotas. Catherine, because I think that they are important. They have been important in the past, but we do have to recognize there's a moral hazard of institutionalizing that. You can't just flip it and suddenly you know, transform your evaluation of people. And what happens in those kind of cases is they become a cover your ass scenario when it's codified, right? We need to do it because it's the right thing to do. And so I think that that's where leadership comes in. And that leadership comes from our political leaders, comes from our corporate leaders, making sure that every decision that we make has diversity, ethnic diversity, racial diversity, age diversity, and gender diversity in the tent, mm -hmm. right? And we as investors, like I think investors have a real cross to bear on this. They need to make sure that they are investing in women founders. And supporting programs like She Starts, supporting programs like Girls Who Code and CEO and RoboGals. And, you know, there are so many of us out here who are taking a little chip, you know, out of that monolith. And if we can do that and make some of that systemic change, then we'll be in a better place. But it is a long haul. And I would say to every female founder out there, whether they're nine years old or 19 or even, you know, 99, there are people that will believe in you, male or female, and there will be people, especially now, who are willing to help you. Sometimes you just have to find your tribe. Yeah. You know, the change is fundamentally better than it was. We're still not there yet. Right? Yeah, so if I can sum up, we really do need to be aware of our unconscious bias. We need to be supporting all diversity at all levels. We need to be focusing on our younger generation, really, and building mm. from the ground up. And we really need to be, you know, aware of the changes and making 10-minute fixes on a daily basis, for instance, mm -hmm. to be able to affect change. So it's not just one thing you're suggesting, it's a lot of little things. Yeah, and I might just add one last thing if I can, because I sure. get the last word in. Um, <laughs> I think, especially right now, every leader has to look at themselves and say, if I do this, if I make this change, if I make this decision with a leadership diversity frame, would I make the same decision if nobody was looking? Because if they say no, if I would hire that woman instead of that man and nobody would call me on it, but it's the right thing to do, then I should do it. But if I'm only doing it to virtue signal, mm. then I need to go back and re-educate myself. Mm -hmm. right? So we will be in a better place when the merit of the situation is more important than you know, the quotas of the virtue signaling. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're getting there, right? We just have so many great female leaders 
and a lot of great male leaders. And as soon as we get away from focusing on those things and re-educate ourselves, then you know, we'll be in a much better place as a society. I hope that's the society that my boys raise their kids in. You know, I don't have any daughters, but you try and make sure that they understand that this is a pretty important and big question. Yeah. Um, As parents, you know, it's our job, mm. certainly my job to teach my girls and my boy that mm. it's important to include everybody and to have a diverse and unbiased perspective on these things. And that it's very important for me to teach my girls that they can do these things. It's possible. So on that note, thank you very much, Lithopoia. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I love your ambassador for women in STEM and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I just ask everyone to make sure that they um, watch out for the next She Starts in the end of this year and keep listening to, um, to your program, your podcast. Thank you very much, Luther. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.